The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the Mount of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. Today I am a messenger, a messenger twice. I am bringing a, messen, a message from the Lord that is from the scripture, but then I am bringing a message from our brother John Newton. He was supposed to be here this evening, but uh, I, I, I will ask you to pray for him. He is not feeling well this He's not feeling well this evening, so he sent me his message. So I am his messenger this, this evening, and we are going to start with a word of prayer. Amen. Lord, we come before you knowing that this is your word, that you gave it for our edification, you gave it for our correction, you gave it for our training in righteousness, you gave it to understand the way of salvation, which is through faith. In Jesus Christ, by your spirit this evening, we pray that you will make your word do all these things for us by faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. About a third of the way through the letter J, is something with, let me check the microphone one more time. Can we try now, Janice? Good? Sorry. I will use this as John Newton used this microphone when he preached. About a third of the way through the letter J in my dictionary, you will come across the word Jeremiah. And what you ask is a Jeremiah. Well, a Jeremiah is defined as, and I quote, a long literary work in which the author bitterly laments the state of society and its morals in a serious tone of sustained invective and always contains a prophecy of society's imminent downfall. With a long definition like that, it is clear to anyone who knows their Bible where the word Jeremiah originates from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, 52 chapters of almost 
uninterrupted gloom and doom. And if that weren't enough, Jeremiah wrote an equally doleful sequel, the book of Lamentations, five more chapters of melancholy and woe. Many years ago, when I was in my late teens, I remember coming across a book entitled, Are You Joking, Jeremiah? I don't think it was, it was the author's intention to turn Jeremiah into a kind of 7th century BC stand-up comedian. A humorist Jeremiah certainly was not. What the author was really trying to do was to ask the question, Jeremiah, can things really be that bad? Are the circumstances really as dire as you want us to believe? And I have no doubt that Jeremiah's answer would have been an, an unequivocal yes, or maybe worse. For the few past months, I've been working my way through Jeremiah's part of my daily time. I'm daily quiet time. And it hasn't been easy reading. Jeremiah lived in the late years of the 7th and the early years of the 6th century before Christ. He proclaimed the message that the Lord had entrusted to him over a period of 40 years, spanning the reigns of the last four of Judah's king, kings, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. As he wrote all that was left on the once great nation of Israel were just two of the original 12 tribes, Benjamin and Judah, clustered around the capital city of Jerusalem. Now their existence, too, was being threatened with the expansion of the Babylonian Empire to the north and the rapid advance of its seemingly invincible armies. What were the people of Judah to do? Much of the leadership were urging that they, they form an, an alliance with the Egyptian empire to the south. Indeed, if worse came to worst, to abandon Judah altogether and flee to Egypt. Imagine the irony, though, of going back to the very place where their ancestors had escaped from slavery 500 years before, to the land from which God himself had intervened to rescue them with miracles on a scale never witnessed before or since. To Jeremiah, the notion 
of turning to Egypt was unthinkable. God's word through him to the people and their leaders were these. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. Again and again, with words like these, Jeremiah urged the people of Judah to remain in their land. Yes, the Babylonian army would attack and enslave them. Yes, those who survived will be lucky to escape with their lives. And all of this, said Jeremiah, was not just that Judah happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, what was unfolding around them was the due punishment that they had brought upon themselves, retribution for the countless ways in which they had blithely abandoned God and his laws to adopt pagan practices and to oppress the poor. So it was that Jeremiah went through the streets of Jerusalem confronting prophet and priest, generals, landowners, leaders, merchants, and kings, anyone he could find with his message of warning. And he didn't fear to mince his words. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and names, your lewd whorings on the hills in the field. Woe to you, Jerusalem! How long will it be before you made clean? Jeremiah chapter 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Chapter 22 of Jeremiah. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. Chapter 23 of Jeremiah. Needless to say, Jeremiah and his constant warnings of doom did not meet with a positive response. On one occasion, his prophecies were cut up and torn to, shred, to, shed, to shreds by the king himself. On another, he was arrested on charges of treachery and locked away in a dungeon. And on still another, he was tossed into a cistern 
and would have died of starvation in the mud had he not been rescued. Yet, none of, none of these halted Jeremiah's determination to issue the warnings that God had given him. Their little kingdom was doomed, but the Lord would restore them if only they would turn from evil and injustice and be faithful to him once again. Now, it's not as though Jeremiah was just an angry old man or an angry young man for that matters. Beneath all his words of woe and retribution and judgment, as with all the prophets, was the unquenchable conviction of God's undying love for his people. So it is that in today's passage, we come across some of the most beautiful and moving words in all scripture. There, through Jeremiah, God addresses his wayward people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, this way not now, this was not some new fangled idea that Jeremiah had come up with. He was not inventing anything. The everlasting, undying love of God is a thread that weaves its way through the whole of the Bible, from beginning to an end. It takes us all the way back to that for unforgettable scene in the Garden of Eden, where God takes the creature that he has created in his own image, that he has formed from the dust of the ground and tenderly breathes into him the breath of life. We witness we witness it as Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, garden from their disobedience. Yet, in his fatherly care for them, the Lord will not see them go cold and naked, but caringly provides them with garments of animal skins. It thunders from Mount Sinai, as the mighty God proclaimed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping a steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Later on, as they, as they near the promised land, Moses proclaims once again the Lord's message to the prophets of Israel, to the people of Israel. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord, the Lord loves you. And as we move forward, uh, if we move farther through the Bible, the chorus of God's love rings through the Psalms as well. Psalms 33, for example, reminds us that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. But most notable, not, not, notably, it is Psalm 136, where we are invited to sing, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His love endures forever. But not just once. In each of the 25 verses that follow, the psalmist calls upon us to repeat the chorus, For His steadfast love endures forever. But one of the most moving pictures of God's inexhaustible, that's a word that John is using to make me look a fool, inexhaustible love comes to us in the book of Hosea. I suspect of you are familiar with Hosea's unrelenting devotion to his wife, Gomer. Perhaps we could blame Hosea for making a poor choice of a wife in the first place. Since Gomer already had a reputation from, for promiscu promiscuity. Long before he took her in marriage. Yet God had a plan in it all. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that Gomer has not given up her adulterous lifestyle. Although forced to divorce her, Hosea continues to love Gomer in spite of her unfaithfulness to the point where later he finds her living as a slave and purchases her freedom, giving us in the process a profound real-life parable of God's love for his people. So it is that God can, could instruct Jeremiah to write even to a people who had rejected him. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That love is a theme that weaves its way through the whole of Scripture 
as I've attempted to point out, from the beginning to the end. And so it is on this fourth Sunday in Advent, with Christmas just around the corner, that we focus on God's love. The poet Cristina Rossetti put it to rhyme in a little poem that later became a Christmas carol. Love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign. The only problem is that with all the charming pictures of sheep and oxen and shepherds, we run the risk Probably we just, thank you, Carl. Thank you. And let me repeat that again. The only problem is that with all the charming picture of sheep and oxen and shepherds, we run the risk of romanticizing that love, turn it, turning it into something that is cute and cuddly, like the little baby gazing innocently up from the manger. Let's not forget the smell of the sheep and the oxen, and let's not forget that those crusty shepherds were terrified, scared out of their wits, as the sight, at the sight of the angels. No, the love that entered the world at Christmas was a fierce, a fierce love, a costly love. And it would be 40 days after that first Christmas that old Simeon would draw attention to that truth. When Mary and Joseph brought their newborn son to be presented in the temple in Jerusalem. As he starred down on the little infant, Simeon's word to Mary were bone-shilling. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Jerusalem, in Israel, and for a sign that, it, that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon could not have been aware of it, but with the advantage of hindsight, we know that what he was pointing to would ultimately lead to the cross. We know that what he was pointing to would ultimately lead to the cross. And looking back on it years later, from the other side, the Apostle John could write, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent 
his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we want to catch a vision of the love of God in all its fullness, it is not to the manger that we must look, but past the manger to Calvary, to the one who, in the Apostle Paul's words, loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so today, you and I come together on this fourth Sunday in Advent, this Sunday of love. In a few minutes, that fourth candle, the love candle, will be extinguished. But let us never lose sight of the fact that the love that you and I celebrate this Christmas season is a love that will never be put out. For we come together in the presence of the God who says to us, as he said to Jeremiah centuries ago, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for this message that has been passed through centuries that you will send your love in a form of a baby to die for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And therefore, we can say, you have loved us with an everlasting love. As we saw with the kids, as we saw in this passage, you loved us first. Not because we deserve it, not because we were great in numbers, but because you are a great love, loving God. And therefore, Lord, we are here giving you thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is love. And we are so grateful to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and let's sing together this beautiful closing song. <laughs>